0: Welcome everyone to part two of our discussion with Dr. Rebecca Del Sol of Stopwatch. This is Matteo Yoon from the HSF Charities Practice in London. Joining us today is Richard Norwich, the head of our uh, charities group globally. Uh, we're delighted to be joined again by Rebecca to talk through Stopwatch as a charity. If you've missed part one of our podcast, Rebecca was telling us all about the fantastic work that Stopwatch does, how she became involved with Stopwatch and, and some of its key milestones along the way. Rebecca, I wanted to kick off by picking up the discussion we were having in part one around the key activities of Stopwatch. Stopwatch is really active on social media and we wanted to ask you whether you had any top tips for any other charities or indeed not-for-profits who might be listening on how best to manage their social media accounts.
1: Oh, thank you. That's, um, <laughs> that's nice to hear that we're good on social media, because it's always one of the internal conversations we have about how we need to do more, but also how we make our work accessible and visible. I think not just in terms of social media, but just in terms of messaging. One of the key things that we've always focused on at Stopwatch is how do we make quite dense academic data accessible to people? How do we make it meaningful? And so we've always focused on both putting together a qualitative and quantitative element. So having the statistics balanced by the personal story and the lived experience, but also trying to make when we do have statistics, how do we make those make sense or make them like easily accessible to people or put them into context for people? And we've tried over the years to do a lot more around using infographics, short bite-sized bits of information, fact sheets. Um, And I've got colleagues that are really dedicated and much better at this than me. But one of the challenges we've always had is having a group with lots of academics is that we want to write long papers rather than think about actually what kind of bite-sized information can we give to people that gives them the key points that they need either for their own knowledge or awareness or to take into policy debates and so really trying to keep it short and distill key messages in an accessible manner um, and using some of the modern kind of visualization tools to allow you to do that
0: in the first part of our discussion, you talked about the journey that Stopwatch went on from being, I guess, incubated as part of another charity and then spinning off as a CIO. I think you were registered in 2015. I had a bit of a question around around that, and, and maybe I'm picking that a little bit, because I'm sure there are lots of charities listening and organisations listening that may be in a similar situation where it's currently working as a sort of division of another organization or as part of a not-for-profit or just a coalition of individuals thinking about the same sort of issues as, uh, as each other and, and looking to awareness raise. What sort of happened around that, that, that time uh, when you decided to register as a separate charity and, and what ultimately turned your hand towards that decision?
1: Um, yeah, so when we started, it was very much a loose group of people that came together to have a project around stop and search. Um, and we were first really kindly hosted by the Runnymede Trust, and then by Release, which was a brilliant opportunity for a young group or charity to be to sit within a within another organisation that could then help with all the staffing and the financing and all the all the really challenging, difficult administrative parts of of the day to day running of an organisation. But I think over time we grew and also. Uh, just as as you grow and you expand, it's a lot for whoever is housing you to take on, and also then sometimes you're wanting to go for the same sorts of funding pots, or you're wanting to do some of the same work and do it in coalition. But actually, it becomes more difficult if you're just a project within another project. You can't apply for your own funding, etc. So we did a consultation with all our membership in 2014, 2015. And really spent some time doing interviews with everyone to see what people's preferences were and the preference was then to become a charity which would then allow us to we weren't even necessarily thinking then that we needed our needed to sit separately from from the organizations that we'd already sat with and were working with but just that we would be registered separately so we could do things in our own name and apply for funding in our own name where we needed it
0: and since spinning out and, and registering what do you think has been the most challenging hurdle is on the governance side as the trustee of a charity?
1: I think it's moving from being a volunteer and really loving and enjoying the policy work or the research to then suddenly having all the governance responsibility that comes with it and I think for all of us that hasn't been an easy transition because we joined the coalition because we care passionately about the subject and we've got expertise around it and we're actively doing a lot of the work with the staff and the volunteer team and then when we became trustees We've ended up having a lot of legal and statutory responsibility, which perhaps we weren't always aware of early on how much responsibility there was or what we were signing up for. But it meant much of the time that we might have before been spent doing some research or going, a, doing a youth session or attending something is now spent doing quite a lot of more managerial uh, governance stuff, which isn't what we all signed up for. So that's been um, quite a transition, recognising that, that that actually having the legal responsibility means there is a lot of really boring admin stuff that you need to make sure you get into place. And that doesn't leave always as much time for the fun stuff. But that, I think there's a warning there in terms of really making sure that trustees know what they're signing up for, because I think people often sign up for charities to be a trustee because they're passionate about the area that the charity works in. But in many cases, although you get some time to do some of that, a lot of it is the governance stuff. It is making sure the finances are robust, making sure that the policies and procedures are in place. Um, it's the HR and, and the management and the kind of organisational logistics. And that's the dry, not so fun stuff that's just absolutely essential for the charity to function, but may not be where you want to spend your volunteering time.
0: For other charities listening, particularly those smaller charities which are volunteer-led and, and trustees who are really heavily involved in the practice and, and the policy work of a charity. Has, has there been any sort of resources in particular that you've found to be really helpful for for charity law and, and, and thinking about trustee duty compliance? I don't know if there's anything you've, you've sort of turned to in particular that, that you would recommend.
1: Yes, and I, I would just want to also say thank you as well because HFS came and did a two-part training for us, which was first about the charity commission and how it works, and then also just the duty of trustees and it was really practical in terms of what it actually means the kind of minutes that you need to keep how regularly you need to be around meetings where other charities have come unstuck and and how we can learn from them and so that that was super helpful in, in many ways it did crystallize the kind of process that we were on and and we were comfortable with some of the things we were doing and in other ways it made us realize that where we hadn't been as formal or where we could just tighten up some of our policies and practices and so actually there was quite a lot of, of documentation that you shared from the charity commission that is really helpful in terms of giving you the ongoing templates of how to do things, examples of how to do things. And we've really used those as the templates for for kind of refreshing a lot of our, our internal governance.
0: Brilliant to hear. I guess we've we've been speaking for a while now. We haven't mentioned the C-word yet, but I wanted to ask about COVID and I wanted to to hear from you about about how Stopwatch has been impacted by COVID and perhaps your take on on how COVID has impacted uh, Stop and Search as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it still feels uh, pretty close to home. I've just had another week of isolating after my son's, somebody my son's football team um, tested positive for COVID. So I'm back to, it was back to homeschool hell and um, remembering what a tough year and a half it's been for all of us. Um, In terms of the stopwatch and the charity for COVID, COVID meant really early on that we had to make some structural adjustments. So our staff had to work from home. We realised quite early on that we didn't necessarily have our IT working as well for all the all the practical things that, like sharing files and accessing stuff that hadn't mattered when we had an office or when we, we were able to, to be in touch quite closely or to do things in person. But when we needed to go online, we realised things like workshops delivery and the right kind of platforms for that and sharing information. So we had to very quickly get more tech savvy and bring in tech help to to kind of negotiate the period. I think the hardest thing over the last year and a half has been that COVID has disproportionately impacted Black and Brown racialized communities that were already hardest hit by inequality and policing. And what we've seen during the COVID period was that we had a very the approach that was taken by the government and the police was a really an enforcement um, an enforcement process from the very beginning so we had quite strict regulations around lockdowns and then people were we had very high numbers of finding fines that were given to people when they were out breaking those lockdown or, or seemed to be breaking those lockdown rules Um as we become further a, a distance from this and are able to do mo- more research we've been able to see that many of those finding practices were disproportionate so the police were focusing on perhaps communities where people were key workers, so needed to be out and about, or where they didn't have big houses, so with lots of people stuck in flats or children in flats and were needing to make use of public space more. And so we've seen differentials in how those enforcement rules around the COVID regulations were enforced and an impact on particularly on racialized groups um, over the last year that have, had already been suffering with COVID. And so we'd had a lot more calls from people for help for dealing with that. And we'd, had, we'd very quickly organised with partners in terms of trying to provide more information on the COVID regulations, what that practically meant on the ground for people. But also we did a uh, campaign with some others about how we could help our neighbours rather than reporting people to the police if we were worried they were breaking restrictions, but but how we could be good neighbours and support people when when perhaps they were having a harder time and, and were, p- were finding it hard to adhere to the restrictions.
0: And picking up from there and and, and thinking about all of those uh, new waves that that are sort of uh, adding to the uh, complexity and challenges of your work, looking forward, uh, what's on the horizon for you and for Stopwatch?
1: So we've done the increased research on the psychological impacts of, of stop and search. And we've had a lot of calls over the last year from people that are calls either to um, calls for support, calls for referral to psychiatric help or to lawyers to challenge stops that people don't perceive as being fair. And um, we've developed a rights and well-being programme, the Royal Project which is really focused on long-term programming to build resilience and support for those communities. So over the years, we've done a lot of work with young people um, and with partner organisations around a, a piece of work called Why stop which is really supporting people around knowing how to de-escalate encounters. So giving young people the tools not to assert their rights, because often on the street, the reality is that they don't have a lot of rights, but really being able to make sure that they're aware of what should happen in an encounter, how they can play into those dynamics and how they might complain or get redress afterwards. But there's been a lot less work and focus on what happens after a stop and search. And if you talk to anyone who's experienced it, it, it's not a five minute interaction. It stays with you and it can have long-term impacts on on your mental health and your community's health. And so we're doing a piece of work which will allow us to develop programming to really support people around that so that we've got a parent's guide around stop and search. We're doing a guide to surviving stop and search. We're working with different practitioners around different mental health interventions and how we can make them culturally relative um, and respond to the dynamics dynamics of policing in particular and the mental health impacts around that. So we'll have group workshops, individual workshops um, and literature and other resources that can support people and hopefully build resilience, but do some of the work that helps communities to unpack and to talk about what happens after an encounter. Um, And and on my hope, on a more general level, that it starts to normalise and sensitise people to the idea that stop and search isn't a moment's inconvenience. It is an encounter that has long-term psychological and health impacts for people and one that we have to take much more seriously if we're really going to care about each other and our communities and particularly young people where it can happen to them at quite impressionable ages. To to do that, we need to care about people's whole well-being and themselves and make sure that we're providing those resources.
2: Rebecca, thank you. uh, So interesting, uh, insightful, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you for all that you've shared with us over this podcast and and the previous episode. You you mentioned there some materials. Where can people find out more about that? Where can people find out more about Stopwatch?
1: Yes, you can um, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and we have a website which is about to be uh, totally revamped. So do check it out. It's www.stop myfordwatch.org. And there's information about all of our different projects on there. And I'd just like to say a huge thank you for having me. It's been lovely to have this this time to have a chat with you today. But also, we're just immensely grateful for the relationship with HFS um, and the help that you've given us around governance. It really has helped us think through what's necessary and where we're at and take stock of that. And we're looking forward to continuing to work with you. Thanks
2: excellent yeah well obviously our contribution to your organisation is very modest compared to everything that you do but we're we're delighted to be working with you and and supporting the work in in the ways that we can so that that website address uh, we will put in the podcast notes we'll also pop in there uh, a link to our charities page from our website our private wealth and charities page so you can find out a little bit more about what hsf are doing in this space and uh, just uh, thank you again to Dr. Rebecca Delsall for joining us today, and also to Matteo as well for, for guiding us through uh, the conversation uh, in the second half of this podcast. Thanks very much for listening.